I find it interesting that Rich is the one reading the scriptures this morning. He's our resident pilot, and uh, he is a, a professional pilot. And my father-in-law was a pilot. He used to tease, I'm not a pilot, nor am I the son of a pilot, but I'm the son-in-law of a pilot. And uh, one of the things that Cindy's dad would love to do is to take those of us who were not used to flying and take you up in his private plane. And then he would kind of push the limits of his airplane to see how you would react and whether or not you were qualified enough to marry his daughter. (laughs) One of the things that that did as I would fly, his name was Lloyd, and we would go up in his airplane is I had a love for it. It was one of the things that I wanted to do was get my pilot's license. I never did, but I would do a lot of reading about flying and how you flew and about airplanes and things like that. One of the times that we were flying, I learned the difference between what's called VFR and IFR. VFR is called visual flight rule. VFR is how you fly when you can see clearly around you. When you can see the ground and you can see where the horizon is and where the land stops and where the sky begins. You can see just from what is surrounding you in the ground, whether that plane is banking left or right or whether nose is down or nose is up. You get a sense of your, your altitude by, by looking down and seeing where you are in relationship to the ground. They used to call that flying by the seat of your pants. That you're flying by all your perception. But one time we were flying and the weather changed. And my father-in-law was an excellent pilot. But as the weather began to change, the clouds began to move in. And we had to quickly get down from the height that we were to below the clouds. Because when you are flying in clouds, you are now under what is called IFR, instrument flight rule. And the reason is because when you are flying, when you lose sight of the horizon, when you lose sight of where earth and and land, I mean sky and land begin, when, when you can no longer orient yourself to what is around you, you become very, very disoriented very quickly. This week I was reading an article that said the average pilot will become what they call spatially disoriented in about 178 seconds. And suddenly, you don't know if you're flying down or flying up. You don't know if that airplane is losing altitude or gaining altitude. And probably one of the most dangerous is you don't know whether or not that plane is banking and turning or whether it's flying straight. Now, there's two things that are fighting against you in the midst of that murkiness. One is outside of you as a person. 
It's the cloud cover. It's the, the weather conditions. It's the, the inability to tell exactly where you are in relationship to the ground and the earth and the sky and what is around you and what surrounds you disorients you. And it happens, obviously, in clouds. But I had a friend when I was in Louisiana that actually crashed an airplane and survived, obviously, because he was flying over water. On a fairly clear day, but there was enough of a haze that he could not tell where the horizon was. And he became spatially disoriented, and he actually took that plane right into the water. The outside world is fighting against you and disorienting you. But also, inside your own self, there is that which is fighting to to disorient you. It's your inner ear. Your inner ear and the fluid in there is what gives you a spatial sense. It it gives you that sense of whether you're bending over or leaning back. It gives you that sense whether you're leaning right or whether you're leaning left. It, It tells you what you're doing. But the problem is your inner ear and the fluid there can be a little bit behind it because of friction, because of other things, so that sometimes you can become disoriented. You ever been stopped at a stoplight or something and the person next to you backs up? What does that do? You, you, go, well, well, you, know, you slam the brakes on and you, you look up to see what's going on. Why? Because at that moment, what, what's going on around you and what your inner ear is telling you is two different things. And you go, that's Greek, by the way. Well, that's what happens in the airplane. You are disoriented because there's no cues on the outside. And you're disoriented because what you think inside is incorrect. And you can slowly begin to bank and not even know it. You can begin to slowly spiral down. Or you can begin to pull that nose up so much that you stall. And it's not a good thing to do. So what do you do? Do you not fly in bad weather? Well, that's okay for someone like my father-in-law who just did it because he enjoyed it. But what if it's your job? What if you're a commercial pilot? What if you're a passenger pilot? What, what do you do then? Well, that's where instrument flight rule comes in. And basically the idea is you don't trust your own perceptions. You trust certain instruments that are on your panel that tell you where you are. And when you are doing instrument flight rule, there are certain instruments that you need to have in order to do it. And this is where it gets more complicated than I understand. But there are some basics. One of them is an altimeter. It tells you how high or how low you are flying. Another is called a turn bank indicator. It's a little ball inside of this little sort of banana-looking thing, that when you begin to bank, it rolls in one direction or it rolls in the other direction, and it tells you whether you're banking. 
There's another instrument called the false horizon, which tells you whether or not the nose of the airplane is down or whether the nose of the airplane is up. And what you need to do when you are flying IFR is you basically, in a sense, need to not worry about what your sensations are telling you, what you feel. You need to look at the instruments. You need to look at those readings. You need to look at that information, and you need to fly by those instruments. Because to do otherwise is to risk a crash and death. In fact, when you're learning IFR, when you're learning to fly that way, they put a hood on you so that you can't see the horizon. All you can see is the instruments. And you fly by what those instruments tell you is true. Just as a pilot needs to fly by those readings and instruments, as a believer, as someone that wants to follow Christ, I find that I am constantly living my life according to instrument flight rules. That I cannot fly, I cannot live, I cannot understand what it means to be a follower of Christ by the seat of my pants that I need to follow the indicators and I need to look at what they tell me and based on what they're telling me. And the reason is because there is disorientation outside of me. There is the world. There is the devil. There is those kinds of things that are seeking to disorient my thinking, seeking to disorient my life, seeking to cause me not to know truth and the way to live truth. but also internally. I have a bent as a human being, and that bent is away from God. That bent is towards rebellion. That bent is towards selfishness. That bent is towards self-centeredness. That bent is away from God in my fallenness. And so I'm disoriented from the outside. I'm disoriented from the inside. And God's word says, listen, you need to fly by the indicators. And make sure that those are lining up. Sometimes it won't feel right. Sometimes it feels uncomfortable. Sometimes it's in opposition to what I'm assuming Paul says, fly by the indicators and you'll fly in truth. You'll live in truth. If you have your Bibles, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We've been working our way through this book and this is about the 20th some message on this book. And you remember in chapter 10, Paul changed kind of the atmosphere of the book. He had been dealing with his apostolic ministry and telling them that, that he was an apostle of God and bringing them truth and was excited to know that they were responding to him after some difficulty and struggle. In chapters 8 and 9, Paul deals with the collection that is going on. But in chapter 10... He begins to deal with those who are opposing God's authority that rested in Paul. And we said, now, today there are no apostles. 
I can't get up here and say, thus saith the Lord through the apostle Keith. But what I can say is thus saith the Lord by the word of God. And though we no longer have living apostles, we have their writings. We have the word of God. That is the means by which we decide what is true and false. It is the way in which we decide the direction we're moving. It is the authority of our lives. And that's what Paul was focusing on. What's the authority? What do you live by? How do you know you're living in the right direction? How do you know you're following the right teaching? How do you know you're following the right person in your life? I can't watch Christian TV. I get too angry. Because there's just so much on there that is theological junk. There's too much that is popular that simply isn't God's word. How do we know? How do we know that grace is a church I ought to be a part of? How do I know that this is where God would have me? What are the indicators that I need to look at? That's what Paul deals with. And he's saying to these false teachers, he's saying to the Corinthians, take a look and where they don't match up to the indicators, there is falsehood. Don't fly by the seat of your pants. Fly by the authority of God's indicators, the authority of God's word. So as we begin to look at it, what we find out is this. In our murky world, in the, the world in which, yes, the, 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 the world is in opposition often to God and, and Satan is working in there. In that murky world, in that murky world where, where my own thinking tends to move away from God. In our murky world, we need clear indications to navigate by truth. Paul in this particular section. Will give us just some of the basics. But ultimately it's this. Does it conform to the clear teaching of God's word? I was reading an article this week. I found very, very intriguing. It was in, I think Christianity Today was where it was, was found in. In it, it was a woman who was struggling with homosexuality in her life. And she talks about how she was searching spiritually. And she went and found a church that was saying, yes, that, that homosexuality is, behavior is fine. And that, you know, marriage between two men or two women are fine. And, and she said, you know what, I, I was going to be comfortable there. And then I just began reading God's word. The clear teaching of what God's word says. And I had to change my mind. What was so intriguing about this particular article was the woman said, you know what? I never lost those desires. But I chose to live in obedience to God's word. I didn't fly by the seat of my pants, if you want. I didn't go on what I felt. I took God's indicators. And I chose to believe him. And what he said to be true. We need those indicators. We need those navigable 
means by which we can know the ways to go. As fallen creatures living in a fallen world, we always navigate in uncertainty. We're going to look at our work and what does the world say about our work? The world says our work is about gaining money. The world says our work is about gaining power. The, work, the world says our work is something that we try to get rid of as soon as possible so that we can go out fishing and golfing and doing all those kinds of things. Now listen, I love fishing. But I need to make sure that I'm thinking about work the way God's word says I need to think about it. I need to be thinking about my children the way God's word says I need to think about. Because in a fallen world, we tend to navigate in uncertainty. Now what Paul does is the first thing he says is that we must be aware of the uncertainty that exists within us. As Paul is writing to this Corinthian church in verse 4, he says, you know, I'm concerned. I'll begin reading in verse 3. He says, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or a different gospel, you are bent in that direction. We so often want to move in the direction of our comfort. Move in the direction of least conflict. Move in the direction of what feels best. Paul says to the Corinthian church, be careful of that. That's not the instrument by which to fly by. As he's dealing with them, he says not only that, but we must be aware of the uncertainty created by our enemy. Understand we are in a spiritual warfare. The enemy, Satan and his minions. Not the little yellow guys. Are trying to deceive us. Paul warns them as he was telling them there in verse 13 and 14, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades. Oh, it looks so good. It looks so flashy. It feels so good, and yet Satan is simply using it to draw us astray. We must be aware of the uncertainty caused by those who would deceive. Please be wise. Know that what you hear coming across as Christian is not necessarily true. There are lots of people out there that are simply in the ministry because it's a way they believe to wealth or to power or to controlling of other people or to, to self-aggrandizement or whatever it may be. Paul says they, they call themselves super apostles, but in, in, verse four, in verse 13 he says, but such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, literally deceitful missionaries. That's what Paul's saying there. They masquerade as apostles of Christ, but they're not. 
remember, it was a guy that used to preach when I was in seminary. I've mentioned him already. Um, his name was Ernest Ainsley. He's dead by now, so I'll use his name. And he was the quintessential charlatan. He wore a toupee and it was always sideways. Um, he would always talk about, you know, give me money. If you, if you don't want to give it to me, and money, 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 money was all the kinds of things that he used to do. I remember one time he had a healing service, and it was on TV, and he had this woman come forward, and the woman was deaf, and so he looks at her and he says, say baby. And he, and, and, well, first of all, he whacked her on the side of the head and slapped her ears and said, say baby. And the woman says, baby. Looks at her again and says, say baby. And she says, baby. Looks at her again and says, say Jesus. And she says, baby. It wasn't a real worker of God. What's so interesting is a friend of mine was saved through his ministry because there was just enough of the gospel in it that he responded to it. That's a charlatan, and they're out there. We must be aware of the uncertainty caused by those who would deceive. Paul says we are are given clear markers to navigate that uncertainty. And what Paul does is this whole section at the end of chapter 10 and, and chapter 11 and chapter 12, over and over again, Paul is apologizing. Please forgive me. Please forgive me. Please tolerate me because I'm going to act like a fool. And Paul does something in this chapter that he finds so distasteful. He's going to compare himself to others. Paul says, that's foolishness. The only one I need to please is the Lord and to seek to be obedient to him. But because you folks, that means the church at Corinth, are are so uncertain, let me compare with those that call themselves super apostles. And so Paul begins to use the distastefulness of of self-promotion and comparison And he says, they say that, but let me tell you. They say that, but let me tell you. They say they're this, but let me show you. And Paul says, you know what? I'm going to become a fool and actually compare myself to others. He's doing what what Proverbs chapter 26 and verses 4 through 5 says. It almost sounds like a contradiction until you understand what the writer of the Proverbs is saying. Do not answer a fool in terms of his folly lest you become like him yourself. The writer of Proverbs says, don't don't be like a fool, because then you're acting a fool. But, answer a fool in terms of his folly. Uh, What? Lest he imagine himself to be wise. The writer of Proverbs says, sometimes you show a fool his foolishness, by acting like he does. Paul says, I'm going to act like you do, you super apostles, you, you incredible orators, just to show you how foolish what you do is. And so Paul says, here's the markers. Here's the ways that tell. He says, first of all, there is a relational marker. Those who are real, those who are honest, those who are true, those who are legitimate 
are those that have a true love for the people they serve and for God's people and for God himself. You see their love. You see their attitude of service. You see that they're not in it for the money. They're in it because of the relationship and the love that they have for others. And Paul says, you know what? If you want to compare, let's begin comparing. Verse 2, I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. A jealousy like God. A jealousy like I have for Cindy. I'm not a jealous man. But if another man tries to woo her, tries to interrupt that relationship I have with her, tries to violate that intimacy that I have with Cindy, will I get jealous? Rightfully so. Paul says there are false Christs coming in as false lovers. And I am jealous for you, church. I am like the father of the bride that is protecting the bride so that when the bridegroom comes, that bride will be pure and that bridegroom will, that bride will be ready for her bridegroom. And so Paul goes on to say, I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. I will protect you. I will protect that intimacy. I will protect that relationship. Why? But I am afraid that you are like Eve. Paul says, I don't want you to be torn away. I love you. When you're looking at who to follow, when you're looking at a ministry to be a part of, when you're looking at somebody's teaching, one of the questions you have is, what kind of relationship do they have with those that they lead? So like a father of a bride saying, I will protect you so that you will be that pure bride for your bridegroom. Because I love you. Paul says, let's compare. Then he'll talk more about it as the, the chapters goes on. And he go, Paul says, I'll use the quality of the content of my preaching to expose those who would mislead. You see, the people at Corinth, these super apostles, man, they were great orators. They were the best. Man, when they got up to speak, people wept and people followed and people responded. The only problem was it wasn't true. It was false. Paul says, you know what? I'm not so worried about the flashiness. I'm worried about the content. What do they say? What is the content of their teaching? And Paul says, all right, let's compare. He says, for someone comes to you with a different Jesus, with a different spirit, with a different gospel, you will accept it. And I may not be this trained rhetorical speaker, this incredible orator, but I have the truth of God. And though we cannot say, I, apostle, say to you, this is truth, we can look here and say, do what they are teaching. Line up with what God's word says. Is it true? And then finally... Paul compares himself in terms of motivation. He says, I'm not in this for the money. 
I'm not in this for the prestige. These super apostles were condemning Paul because he would not accept money from the church at Corinth. Because Paul had a way of doing ministry. He would not accept money from the the city, from the church that he was ministering to at that time. And he would only accept money from those churches that had a good relationship with him. You can see it in his writings, the way he interacts. And these super apostles were saying, he just thinks he's better than you. Paul says, you know what? I'll put my motivation up against theirs any day. Now, we're going to look at those three things as we move through the rest of these chapters. But I want to go back to that second one. Talk about the indicators. How do you know if somebody is teaching truth? Well, ultimately, by comparing it to God's word. But what Paul says is God's word provides clear indicators in order for us to navigate accurately. And he gives three, if you want, instruments in this passage. They're found there in verse 4. He says the first instrument is what are they teaching about Jesus? The second is what are they teaching about the Spirit? And the third is what are they teaching about the gospel? You need to have a right understanding of who Jesus is to fly right. You need to have a right understanding of who the Holy Spirit is and what he does to fly right. You need to have a right understanding of the gospel. How does one come into a pleasing relationship with God? How does one become accepted by God? How does one have an eternal relationship with God? And if those teachings are right, there's a good indication you're flying in the right direction. So the first thing that Paul says is this. To navigate well, we must have a clear understanding of who Jesus is. I I remember we went through the the Gospel of Luke. And we did chapters 4 through chapters 12 and and it took us months to go through that just to talk about the answer to Luke's question who do you say Jesus is understand who Christ is just some of the basics he's the second person of the Godhead he's one with the father he is God He is the fullness of God in bodily form, fully God and fully man. You want to know what God thinks? Look at what Jesus thinks. You want to know what pleases the Father? Look at what the Son did. You want to know what kind of life we ought to live in holiness? Look at the way the Son lived. You want to understand what it means to love one another? Love one another how? The New Testament level. Because I have loved you. He is the creator of all things. He is the crucified sacrifice, the payment for our sins. God loves us so much that God in Christ, the second person of the Godhead, came and died upon a cross so that we might have an eternal relationship with him. And one of the things that that does is ask us the question, is there any sacrifice too great that God might ask of you in your relationship with others? 
He is the perfect revealer of the Father and the perfect example of holy living. He is our risen Savior who will return. He is our Lord to whom we are accountable. Someday, even as a believer, I will give an account for my life, not for judgment, not for condemnation. That's only those that are not believers, but for reward. To give an accounting. How did you use your talents? How did you use your abilities? How did you use your resources? How did you use your money? Did you use it in a way that was pleasing to your Lord? And he is the one who rewards his faithful servants. The problem is this. This is from the Babylon Bee. If you don't get the Babylon Bee, get the Babylon Bee. It's a website. It's a satirical website. I love satires. My favorite magazine when I was in college, at Bible college, was the Wittenberg Door. Some of you know what that was. As a kid, one of my favorite magazines was Mad Magazine. Does that tell you a little bit about me? And they do these satirical sort of headlines. Progressives criticize Jesus for not being very Christ-like. What's that saying? That Jesus doesn't conform to what I feel, what I think, what I believe ought to be. And so the question becomes, who's Lord of your life? The seat of your pants? Or what God's word has proclaimed to be true? We don't like the exclusivity of Jesus. We don't like the call to holiness of Jesus. We don't like the the gentleness of Jesus. God calls us to be like Christ revealed in his scripture. And that is one of the indicators. The second indicator is to navigate well. We must have a clear understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. He is God. He is the one sent by the Father and the Son to indwell us. He is the indwelling new covenant presence of God in every believer. The spirit is no longer with us as it is talked about in the upper room discourse. He is now in us. You, if you're a believer, I as a believer have God's presence within me to guide and direct, to correct and to convict, to lead and to to assure And so he is the one who convicts, corrects, leads, reveals, guides, enlightens concerning spiritual truth. We can say, God, please provide wisdom. God's spirit is there. He is the one that works through us to accomplish the Father's will. A sermon means nothing unless God's spirit is working through it. No matter how flowery it might be, no matter how good it might be, unless God's spirit is at work, it will mean nothing. He is the one who works in us and with us. He's changing us. As we seek to be obedient through his empowerment, we become more and more and more Christ-like. He empowers our prayers. And ultimately, he seeks to glorify the Father and Son. One of the 
clearest ways to know that there's misteaching about the Holy Spirit is if the Holy Spirit becomes the focus of a ministry. The Holy Spirit leads to a glorification of the Father and Son. That's his task. But too often it's misunderstood. Local pastor describes the Holy Spirit as identical to the force from Star Wars. Satirical, okay? Not true. But too often awfully close to truth. And then finally, to navigate well, we must have a clear understanding of the gospel. What's the good news? What is it? Be a better person? Be more involved in this? Do more of that? No. The gospel is received through a trusting response to God's gracious provision. Jesus died for me. If I accept that as the means by which God is satisfied with me, I then have a right relationship with him. The gospel is freedom from all condemnation. God is now, I am now on God's side. He is now for me. I love one phrase that I read. If God has a refrigerator, your picture is on it. The gospel is a right relationship with God. He no longer has any wrath towards you. That was spent on Jesus. The gospel is freedom for our enslavement to sin. Used to be when sin said jump, I said how high. Now when sin says jump, I say, is that an obedience to the Lord? The gospel is being saved from the practice of sin. It's not just being saved from the consequences, but God is at work to change me. The gospel is having an eternal dwelling with God in heaven. The gospel is our call to do good works. And then finally, the gospel is to be shared. By teaching, we navigate. By revelation of God's word, we navigate. This one I found interesting. Discovery Channel to feature uh, deadly prosperity gospel preachers for Shark Week. And you'll notice underneath it says, faces blurred to protect the guilty. Beloved, get to know God's word. Get to know the basics of truth. And by that, we live a life that is navigated in a way that pleases our God. Father, thank you for Paul and for his willingness to instruct us and to guide us. May we be like him in a desire to want to be submissive to your word, submissive to your will in our lives and to be led and guided by the revelation you've provided for us. Father, thank you that we do not have to navigate our lives simply by the murkiness that surrounds us, but we have the clarity of your word to teach us and guide us. Father, as we mention each week, that begins with a relationship with you through your son. And we invite anyone who doesn't know they have a relationship with you or isn't certain their sins are forgiven or isn't certain that they will spend eternity with you to come and speak to me or someone else to know how they might have that certainty. 
And Father, we ask you that you would allow your spirit to teach us to know what truth is that we might live by. And we ask it in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.